The Linux Action Show is created by Jupiter Broadcasting. It's sponsored by Ting. Go to last.ting.com to save off your first device or plan and DigitalOcean. Go over to digitalocean.com and use our promo code LASTDIGITAL and then you can spin up your own Linux rig for free. Welcome to Linux Action Show, episode 372. My name is Chris. My name is Noah. Hey, Noah, guess what? Big, big show today. Coming up on this week's episode of the Linux Action Show. As proud parents, we're always sort of tweaking and refining our photo workflow under Linux. Today, if you're a total casual noob, doesn't take hardly any photos, to the high-end DSLR expert, we have got the perfect photo workflow for you from tips, tools, tricks, and also the ultimate backup solution. Plus, a friend of the show will be stopping by who's a casual Linux user, but a enthusiast photographer, and he'll be showing us his workflow for Linux as well. So it's a great show, but it's not just that. In the news segment, we're going to talk about Pinos. Is it Pulse Audio for video? <laughs> what? It's a fascinating project that could change things for Linux in a big way, but is it associated with something that maybe has a bit of a stigma? Also, OwnCloud 8.1's coming out. We'll tell you what's new. There's some interesting stories around the Yoda phone. One camp says it's dumping Android and switching to Selfish OS, and another group says that's a bunch of horse pucky. And then, last but not least, we're going to talk about, talk about why CodeWeaver is bringing DirectX 11 to Linux is going to be a really huge deal. And then, no, we've got our feedback. But before all of that, it's... The picks. It's the picks. It's the picks, Noah. And let's start with this one. Uh, you and I went back and forth on this one because we had a couple of good runs Linux this week. And we're like, is this too heavy? But it's right out, it's ripped right out of the news headlines. And I bet it confirms something most of you already suspected. And in a way, Noah, you know what I love about this runs Linux? That it uh, exemplifies everything we don't want people to do with Linux? Well, there's that. That's not what I love about it, though. What, okay. I, what I love about it is it means even the most hardcore Windows and Mac users are involuntarily Linux users. Their yeah. data is being stored involuntarily <laughs> under Linux because, that's right, the NSA's X-Keyscore program runs Linux. Yeah, the, uh, the X-Keyscore program is the sort of Google-like search capabilities that sits on top of all of the metadata that the NSA collects uh, from phone records and internet traffic. There's a three-day buffer that they collect all internet traffic in, and then they use X-Keyscore to go out and find selectors that they then flag for long-term storage. All of this is, turns out to be done under Apache, MySQL, Linux, Gluster. Like, it is a standard affair system. In fact, some people argue it's not even built all that well. It was sort of tossed together. Uh, so The Intercept has this report where we get details. They say, this is their writing. The global internet surveillance network is powered by a somewhat clunky piece of software running on clusters of Linux servers. Analysts access Keyscore, XKeyscore's web interface to search its wealth of private information, similar to how ordinary people can search Google for public information. XKeyscore is a piece of Linux software that is typically deployed on Red Hat servers. It uses Apache Web Server and stores and collects data in MySQL databases. The file system is a cluster and handled by the NFS distributed file system and the AutoFS service. And scheduled tasks are handled by the cron scheduling service. System administrators who maintain XKeyscore servers use SSH to connect to them. And they use tools such as rsync and vim, as well as a comp comprehensive command line tools to manage XKeyscore software. What do you think, Noah? I, well, I mean, so obviously nobody is surprised that the NSA uses Linux. Um, I think that's a that's a pretty natural way for them to go. But I, I guess the first thought that comes to mind is perhaps AltaSpeed and the NSA should form a partnership because they're converting more people to Linux than I am. Oh, but I'm bummed. But I'm Oh, good one, good one. Yeah, I, I, with the first time this story came out, um, my mind went immediately to how are they storing that much data? And I'll be honest, yeah. I was. Uh, 
I figured it was Oracle. I figured Oracle had some big fatty contract from the NSA, and was and Larry Ellison was making a whole bunch of money off of it. Now it turns out just good old-fashioned open source software. Now here's a bit of a disclaimer: uh, some of these slides come from 2008 and 2009, so obviously mm-hmm. the system has probably been evolved since then. Many things may have changed about it since then, but I bet you some of the core technology hasn't. So there you go, Noah. And how about that mm-hmm. for our runs Linux this week? The NSA's X key score system. Runs Linux a little bit behind the curtain, and we'll have we'll link to the full article over at the Intercept. It's like a two, like a two post. It's like a big one, and they get into the really meaty details of the technical details in the <coughs> second part of the article. It's a good write up. Okay, Noah, we have uh, some excellent picks this week that fit right in with our theme. But first, I want to tell you about our first sponsor, and that's DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is sponsoring Linux Action Show. And, man, they've been doing it for a little while right now. I, I, I can't quite put my thumb on when they started here, but I know I started as a customer a little bit before they came on as a sponsor. And immediately I lit up around the fact that somebody had taken Linux and take, taken KVM and really built a really compelling product that not only works well for somebody who's been in the system, like system administration for a really long time, but it also works really well for people that are just kind of coming to it for the first time and want to set up like their own personal site, or maybe they're just starting to develop a project and they want to have a spot for their community to organize. That's what's really, really awesome about DigitalOcean. In fact, I, I want you to just try it right now. Use our promo code LASTDIGITAL, LASTDIGITAL, and you'll get a $10 promo. Now, when you use LASTDIGITAL, you can try out the $5 rig. $5? Two months for free. And on that thing, you could put CoreOS, you could put Fedora, you could put Ubuntu on there. They even have free BSD. DigitalOcean is a really, really nice solution for anything from small development to full-time production. We have systems that run the back end of Jupyter Broadcasting on there. Sonova has it for AltaSpeed on there. And their pricing is super straightforward. But what I really love is you can get started in less than 55 seconds. They've got a really, really great system built. And really... In 55 seconds, anybody has time to try it. And for $5 a month, you can get 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, one CPU, and a terabyte of transfer. And they've got data center locations in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, and Germany. A terabyte of transfer, when I started this show, would have been a great way to distribute MP3s. And because they have data centers all over the world, you can get a little diversity up in your distribution to make it faster for people in that area. And here's what's really nice. If you want to start getting slick, like you can do automated deployments, you can do built-in snapshot management. They have a great API to manage these systems. I never use it, though. I never use it. I get great. I get, I get stories about how people use it all the time. I wish I was that creative. But to be honest with you, DigitalOcean's dashboard is so good. And it's so simple and straightforward, I find it to be completely adequate. But what I love is folks like Alan can use the DigitalOcean API. They could take it further if he wanted to. Like Alan has Puppet, for example. If he wanted to, if he chose to, he could take advantage of some of the code the community has written around that API because there's lots of great projects around that API. And he could just build that in there. There's standard libraries for like Python and Ruby and Bash. That way you can write a Bash script even to manage your DigitalOcean droplets. There's applets that snap into your Ubuntu desktop and there's... Android phone apps, and there's iPhone phone apps to manage DigitalOcean. It's really, really easy once you get set up. And when you use that promo code LASTDIGITAL, you get a $10 credit. Now, up on DigitalOcean, it's really easy to build something like an own cloud server or a BitTorrent sync server. Now, today we're talking about backing up your photos uh, later on in the show. There is a real solution around own cloud that you can control yourself because for $5 a month, you're going to get a machine that you have root access to. And with own cloud, you can add external storage to that. So as your capacity grows, you can continue to add more space. This is a really nice solution. It's exactly what I'm doing right now. I'll tell you more about that. DigitalOcean.com. Use the promo code LASTDIGITAL. And remember, too, when you use that promo code, you're supporting this show. You're keeping us on the air. You're letting them know, thank you for supporting the Linux Action Show. So that's kind of a big deal. And if you're in a business or a project, like a, even like a, like, you know, 
to the elementary OS guys who use DigitalOcean for their hosting. Uh, DigitalOcean has rolled out uh, team accounts now, so you don't have to share passwords, which is a really, really nice feature. If you're somebody like Noah who's got people working for you and you got a jillion right. droplets and you don't want to have to keep handing out passwords all the time, now you can do team accounts. No, you should totally look that up if you haven't already. Yeah. Yeah, in fact, you know, the other thing that I think it would be uh, super helpful for is I have a couple clients that we have to manage their account, or we have to manage a lot of their stuff, mm. um, but they they obviously, they want access to it themselves, and, and some of them, they, they, they have their own DigitalOcean account, of course, uh, transferring a droplet from my account to theirs is actually fairly trivial. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but what would be nice is right now, the way we're doing it is they're sharing their username and password for their account, um, and that's obviously not the most secure way to do it so I, oh yeah we'll have to look into that team account that seems like a great way to do that yeah that is really nice and i like uh, i like uh, chris armal uh, normal it says in the chat room uh he uses uh for uh, for backup he uses uh, duplicity and his digital ocean mm -hmm. droplet uh uh so that's nice uh i like that i like that a lot now noah uh i want you to use one more thing though i want you to, i want you to keep one thing keep this in mind okay use the promo code last digital Okay? Mm -hmm. Last digital. You get a $10 credit to support this show every single time. And a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the Linux Action Show. All right. So let's talk about Digigam. It's gotten honorable mention on the show a couple of times if you go yeah. and sprinkle throughout the show's history. It's never actually made it as a, as a pick, which is ironic because it's one of the coolest photo management tools out there. I say cool because it's like it's got – it's. First of all, I like it's it's a QT option. I believe I'm not positive on that, but I love the freaking performance of Darktable. When you got a lot of photos, uh, Darktable is great. Digicam is like my second. Digicam is like my, the next one I go to, and I think for a lot of you, Digicam might be the primary one for you, depending on what you use. So later on in the show, we're going to talk about Darktable. But right now, right now, I want to give honorable mention to Digicam. Have you tried it out, Noah? I, I have <clears throat> actually. You know, when I tried it out was when we originally put uh, Angela on Shotwell. Yeah, we yep, got the, yep. the contact form just exploded from people saying you shouldn't have done that. You really should have went with Digicam. Digicam. Yep. Now I take a slightly different uh, a slightly different view on it. <clears throat> I see Darktable as uh, photo editing, and I see Digicam as mm. photo organization and, I use and it for management. Both, but yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, well, yeah, you can. I mean, you could you you could probably shoehorn either to do both, but mm -hmm. I, I feel like the Digicam's real strength is organization. I feel Definitely. like Darktable's strength is editing. Yeah. Um, and after installing Digicam, I, I like I'm totally hooked. I really? think it's definitely it is it is it is it is it is leaps and bounds better than Shotwell. I just didn't. It, it's one of those things where. I didn't know how much better it was because uh, I didn't know the features I were missing until yeah. I tried it, and then it kind of clicked me, and I went, oh, that is why people like Digicam so much more, because it can do all of these things. One of the things that I like about Digicam is uh, it has uh, it has really, really good... I think you might have to have Marble installed, but it has good... Um, uh, like all my, A lot of my photos have location embedded in them, and I love mm -hmm. seeing that. I love seeing the photos where I've taken them and stuff like that. Um, it's fast too. Like Digicam, I think Darktable's maybe a little faster, but I haven't honestly, I haven't honestly compared them side by side in a long time. So I love that you're giving another serious shot because Digicam is a highly recommended one from the audience. And when I looked at our pack, our previous picks, and realized we'd never featured Digicam, uh, this is obviously the episode to make good on that. So the other really nice yeah. thing about uh, the Digicam site is they've got uh, they've got videos up on how to use it. They've got tutorials up. They've got uh, screenshots. Um, this is this is it's pretty it's pretty well set up. I might you know what after this episode I might give it a go. I'm going to talk about Darktable later, but I'm going to give Digicam a go too. Yeah, so uh, you can find out more at digicam.org. We'll have a link in the show notes. It is uh, it is, is it, again it's an it's an advanced photo management application for KDE, and it'll import and snap your photos right into their system, and also has some nice uh, scripting capabilities too. I believe I've never tried it, but I was told when those emails came in that it had some scripting capabilities as well. Mm -hmm. Now you got to have a place to store all those photos. 
And that's why we want to recommend something that maybe you're not super familiar with. Now, you've probably heard of FreeNAS, a pretty good project, one that we talk a lot about on the TechSnap program made by the folks at iX Systems. And I have a FreeNAS server here at the Jupyter Broadcasting Studios. I like it a lot. It's got one big problem, though, Noah. It's not Linux-based. It's not Linux-based. Mm. FreeNAS free is, is free BSD-based. And I want mm -hmm. something Linux-based. And so I've been kind of looking around. And when we put the call out on Linux Unplugged, there was one answer that came in over and over again. And since then, I've been watching this project closely, and it keeps getting better and better and better. And that's Open Media Vault. Open Media Vault 2.1 came out this week. Uh, they call it the Stoneburner Edition. And it's got a new dashboard and widgets, so it's got a new look to it. They added some nice VLAN support, which is really nice for th those of you that want to deploy in a small business. I like that. Uh, there's an overall really nice update. Many internal improvements and bug fixes, they say, of course, and uh, some new technologies to power the web GUI. The new public key and username out now is uh, even stronger. So there you go. They got 32 and 64-bit ISOs available. So our open source proje project spotlight this week is the Open Media Vault project. It's a good free NAS alternative. And if you're curious about it, we did a community review in Linux Unplugged a while back, and uh, the guys walked away pretty impressed by it. And so now there's this new update out. I'm, I'm really tempted, Noah, down the road for you and I to do like a big Jupiter Broadcasting storage yeah. build with this thing. Yeah, it would, it would be really neat. And, you know, the thing is, the, 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 not that there's, I have nothing bad to say about FreeNAS. FreeNAS works really well, and, in fact, it is kind of a de facto go-to when I need a file server. However, there is something to be said about being able to pull drives out of the computer, out of the file server, and plug them into my laptop and just natively pull data off. And not that you can't install uh, the tools necessary to, to, uh, to talk to the file systems that, that, that's used on, um, on FreeNAS, but it is a lot easier if you can just format that stuff as ext4, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that is a nice feature of it, especially when you just want to get those pictures off there. Because, you know, actually, it's happened more often or not as an old file server that I kind of just set aside and then like do need to go get the data off it. Being able to read the drives is huge. Not that there couldn't, not that you couldn't install like uh, the ZFS tools and and make it happen under Linux. But it's nice that. Uh, you have the option. Plus, the other reason I like it is if anything ever goes off the rails with FreeNAS, my skill set under the hood pretty much is just enough to decimate the FreeNAS setup. Like, yeah. anytime I go under the right. hood, on, it, you're just not supposed to do it, I think, because mm -hmm. destroys it. Uh, whereas I feel like s something that's based on Linux, I could at least walk around, wander around, and get an idea of what the hell's going on if something isn't working and not decimate mm -hmm. the machine. So, yeah. When it comes to actually using it in production, that's actually something I have to consider, too. So Open Media Vault, check it out. I think it's a cool project, and I'm glad to see something out there that's offering some competition to uh, FreeNAS. Another one that's on my list to check out down the road is Unraid. So if you're not getting the hint, eventually at some point, I don't know, it might be after the summer, depending on budget and timing and all that, but we might do an ultimate storage build here because we're running low on storage again here at Jupyter Broadcasting. And if we do that, I'd love it to be a Linux-based storage server. So... We'll have you an update, and I'm sure we'll make an episode out of it if that happens. All right, Noah, let's do the news. Hey, it's the news, and this episode is brought to you by... Ting.com. Go to last.ting.com and get adva take advantage of our Linux Action Show discount and also help support the show. Now, wait, wait a minute. Wait, why go to Ting? I actually was just literally having the conversation this morning. Somebody's contract came up, they want to switch, they want to get a new phone, and they said, should I try Ting? And they're like, I mean, I know you talk about Ting all the time, but what about my use case? And I said, well, let's talk about this. How much are you using? Let's grab your bill. And so this is what I recommend you do as well. I've been using Ting for over two years, and I don't know, Noah, are you coming up on two years now too? 
Uh, no, I'm coming up. I I was a customer 2013. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's right. Yeah, 15. Yeah, dang. So, yeah, a little over two years. Yeah. I'm over two years. So if you had yeah. a bill from your old one, what you could do is you go to last.ting.com and you go to the savings calculator and you put in your bills, uh, you know, like how much you actual, your actual monthly, your minutes used, what you actually use, your, your text messages, your megabytes used. Uh, and I want you to use your bill. You can go by your phone for a rough idea. You know, you can pull up your data usage and get a rough idea. Here's the little trick about that. A lot of times your cellular carrier is charging you for the packets they attempted to send to you, not just the ones you received, right? So the phone's only tracking what it sent and received. The carrier is tracking what it sent and received at the cell tower. So if your phone didn't receive it, they don't care. They still had they still had to trend has still had to go over their network. So they're charging you for it. So that's why it's better to go off the bill because the bill represents that number. And then you'll really get an idea of what you're gonna save from Ting. Like me, you might save over two thousand dollars a year by putting your actual usage in there. Why? Because Ting only charges you for what you use. So it's a flat six dollars for the line. You just pay for for the line, it's six dollars and any taxes that might be in your area, it's gonna depend on your state. And then it's your usage, your minutes, your messages, and your megabytes. They add them up, whatever you use, that's what you pay. If you want to turn on hotspot tethering, whatever, for a couple of days and use that as your internet connection because your internet's going out, like I did when an episode of TechSnap had to be filmed because Alan was in studio and Comcast went out, I turned on tethering on my Nexus 5 and we connected our laptops that way. And maybe I used a little bit more data that particular day. That's awesome, because if I need that, I'll pay for it then. I love that about the Ting model, too, because you can set threshold and alerts, and they have apps to manage all of this. Ting really has a great setup, and they have tons and tons of awesome devices, too. Like, everything from a $9 SIM card, so you can just put it in something you've got today, or a $47 Kyocera feature phone that can, like, practically withstand a nuke, all the way up to the Nexus 6. And in between, they've got things like the MiFi's, the OnePlus, the Apple iPhone 5 and 5C, and the iPhone 6, Moto X2, which is a great phone, the HTC M9, oh man, and my favorite, the Samsung Galaxy S6. Yes, I admit it, I'm becoming a Samsung fan. At least the S6, it's a pretty great phone. What, you laugh at me, why? I love that Samsung. I, I've, I like Samsung back when you were still all on uh, all on stock Android because you know stock Android so much better. I think that the I think that the changes Samsung makes to the UI, the changes that they make to the Android operating system vastly improve. Uh, vastly improve the operating experience so much so that I won't. I don't know if I'll own an Android phone if it's not a Samsung. Wow, phone. that's a bold yeah, statement. I mean, there's it's it's simple things. It's things like when I pull down from the top menu, I don't have to I don't have to use two fingers and I don't have to pull down twice. I just I can turn off my Wi-Fi by dropping the menu down and shutting off Wi-Fi. Stock Android doesn't do that. Yeah, and but you know what else stock Android out. doesn't do? It doesn't Ooh. warn you about your hearing when you turn up the volume. That drives me crazy on the Samsung devices, even when the screen's locked. But the S6 is a very, very nice phone. And if you want, like, the Cadillac of Android phones, thing's got an octa-core processor in it and, like, a 544 PPI screen or something. It's amazing. But you know what? doesn't matter what phone you got. You need some apps for it. And Kyra's here with our app pick of the Whoever week. Whoever said getting there is half the fun? Never flew economy. I'm Kyra, and this is the Ting App of the Week. This is for us, Noah. Tripcase aims to take the trouble out of travel. If they don't already have a slogan, they're welcome to use that one. Huh. The first time you try Tripcase, it might blow your mind. When you get a travel email confirmation, just forward it to trips at tripcase.com. That's it. All the relevant details of your trip are now on your phone. If there's a change in your itinerary, if your flight is delayed, or the gate changes, you'll be among the first to know. Tripcase can send you a push nice. notification of changes if you give it the okay. It's about more than air travel, though. Tripcase can help you plan your trip on the ground, too. Ooh, I like See that details on your hotel check-in and out as part of your itinerary. See what the weather's like at your destination with a 10-day forecast. 
Cool. Tripcase has detailed maps of many airports, which is super handy, yeah. especially if you have time to kill before you fly out. Decide what you want to do while you're visiting by pinning attractions, appointments, and stuff you want to see on a map. You can even get driving directions or book a ride with Uber with a couple of taps. Tripcase is free in the Apple App Store and in the Google Play Store. Links are directly below. Thanks for watching. Subscribe to Ting on YouTube and get the latest App of the Week episodes, quick unboxings, reviews, and much more. Until next time. Tripcase. Go to last.ting.com to get started. A big thanks to Ting for sponsoring Linux Action Show. She was just talking about unboxings there. They just posted the unboxing for the HTC M9. Speaking of Cadillac phones, so if you want a little unboxing porn, go to uh, check out Ting's YouTube. But start by going to last.ting.com. That'll get you our discount, and it supports the show. A big thank you to Ting. You can go there just to support the show right now and check them out, read their blog, find out more about the Ting company. That'll help us out too. Last.ting.com. Okay, Noah. So it was uh, during Tuesday's Linux Unplugged, this story literally broke while we were recording the show. During the show, we were talking about the rumor of this new project called Pulse Video. And when you say Pulse Video, the first thing that comes to mind is Pulse Audio. And not everybody has the best connotations when they think of Pulse Audio. Right. So, uh, as was probably a good call, before they actually made the big public announcement, they scrapped that name. And they called it Pinos, I think, or how are you going to say it? Pinos? P-I-N-O-S. We'll say Pinos. I would say Pin. Not Pinos. Okay. We'll go Pinos. Well, there's no E, and there's no, there's nothing, you know, there's, it's an I-N. Oh. Pin. Okay. I was trying. I was trying. Yeah. Yeah. So it's being put on by the Fedora Workstation project of Fedora. And this is what they say is, it is truly to bring sort of Pulse Audio-like functionality to Linux for video. The original goals of Pinos was to provide the same level of advanced hardware handling. <clears throat> that Pulse Audio gives to audio. For those of you who've been around for a while, you might remember once upon a time, you could only have one application using the sound card at a time until Pulse Audio properly fixed that. Pinos, or Pinos, allows you to share your video camera between multiple applications and also provide an easy API to do so. Some features include easier switching of cameras in your applications. It will also allow more easily applications to switch between multiple cameras or mix content from multiple sources at the same time. Multiple types of video inputs will be accepted, so you can have different types of cameras coming in and mix them together. GStreamer integration. Pinos is built using GStreamer and will also have GStreamer elements supporting to make it integrate into GStreamer applications. Simple and straightforward. And Pinos will have, and this is an interesting one, some audio support. It will include audio support in order to allow you to handle audio and video a bit, but they say <coughs> just some audio support. Initial reactions, Noah, as somebody who's been working with OBS and media production under Linux? So one of the big problems we had when we were out at, um, at uh, Self was we were using one, basically one software setup to stream most of the weekend, and then we were using a different software setup entirely to do the show on Sunday. And that provided a problem because we, I had to take, I had to switch in between there, and that required you to break your stream in the middle of it. At least, had we not come up with a workaround, what would have been nice about having this there is, in theory, I could have the main camera, and all the and the guest cam and the and the and the the crowd cam, and I can have all that set up on OBS, and I can be using all that. And then when you want to do the show on Sunday, we can launch Hangouts, and I can steal just the main camera for. Um, for us to do the show, and if there was an ability to do a switching, if we needed to do a switch, I could. Alternatively, though, you could bring in that RT, uh, that RTMP stream uh, still from OBS as it continues to, to go, and then we could switch to the crowd cam and, and the guest cam if we had to. 
Uh, that's just not an option yeah. right now because yeah. I can only use. Why well, I have to restart Hangouts to switch the to, to switch the video device? What I what I like about it is to me is I, I hope it's going to sort of take the burden of figuring out how to work with cameras and video sources away from mm-hmm. uh, most developers. Let let Pinos handle that, and it just like Paul's audio handles the audio now. And in the right. applications, it'll be default Pinos device, default you know whatever, and it'll ha- it'll manage all of that. And the applications can focus on the stuff that those developers are. Are writing. They don't have to worry about how they're going to manage video sources under Linux. They just worry now mm-hmm. how to hook up the UI components, how to connect to a live stream service, how to do a proper desktop capture under Wayland or whatever, because this is going to provide that too. This also mm-hmm. is going to provide some sandbox screen capturing capabilities for future desktop environments. Uh, and they're already experimenting with GNOME 3 under Wayland right now. There is one thing that jumped out at me, and I just want to cover it again, is Pinos will have some audio support. We, uh, mm-hmm. It tries to solve some of the same issues for video that Pulse Audio solves for audio, namely letting you have multiple applications sharing the same camera hardware. Pinos does also include audio support to let you handle both, which makes sense. A lot of times, your audio and video source are the same, are the same device, even. Um, now, it goes on to say, uh, we'll get to who's working on this in a moment, but in their frequently asked questions section, they say, is Pinos and the audio support in it going to eventually replace Pulse Audio? Is this like a roundabout ways to get Pulse Audio out of the picture. And they write, probably not. The use cases and goals of the two systems are somewhat different and not clear that they're trying to, and, we're, and, and different, and it's not clear that trying to make Pinos accommodate all of Pulse Audio's use cases would be worth the effect or possible uh, feature loss. So while there's always a temptation to think, hey, wouldn't it be nice to have one system that can handle everything? At this point, we're unconvinced that gain outweighs the potential pain. So it sounds like Pulse Audio isn't going anywhere as a result of this. And that's good. And, and you know, to anyone that gets too uh, bent out of shape about this idea that, you know, Pulse has had some issues, um, all, you know, the, the advantage that <clears throat> the Pinos guys have is they're aware of all those problems. They're aware of all the challenges that crept mm, up mm-hmm. on Pulse Audio, and so they can spearhead those right from the get-go, right from the start, before right. they get a bunch of code into production, and yeah. then look back and go, oh, that was a bad idea. Yeah, I think also uh, it's fair to, you know, you have to give them this, too. Its relation to Pulse Audio is only a name. There's no shared code. Right. So uh, it's only in spirit. Uh, Pinos is or Pinos is being designed and written by uh, Wim Tamens. I'm not quite sure if we're getting that right. We've actually invited him on the show to talk about this project. So you you mm-hmm. will hopefully get the correct 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 pronunciation directly from him when he comes on the show because it sounds like that's going to happen. Uh, but he's the co-creator of the GStreamer multimedia framework and also a regular contributor to the Pulse Audio project. So he's familiar with it. Uh, he's also working for Red Hat as a principal engineer. Um, and he's in charge of the multimedia support in both Red Hat Enterprise and Fedora. So he seems like a pretty good guy for the job. I'm looking forward to talking to him about this. As a content creator, I'm freaking elated by this mm-hmm. development. Uh, for all of the gripes we have about Pulse Audio, what we do today under Linux wouldn't be possible without Pulse Audio. Right. Yeah. So, uh, and I think the same is going to be true. Uh, one of the things that's always gotten me down when we talk about media production under Linux, mer, I'm always kind of like, mer. you know, it's like, yeah, you can have an editor, and yes, FFmpeg is a great encoder and has a lot of neat tricks, and you can do live streaming, but you don't have the whole pipeline. You don't have the multimedia right. pipeline that manages the cameras and everything connects and talks right. to each other. OS 10 has got their whole core video and QuickTime crap that actually works pretty good under OS 10. Doesn't work for crap under Windows. But Linux has never really had that, so it means every mm-hmm. time these developers have got to bring all that stuff, you know, they can rely on things like video for Linux and stuff like that, but they got to bring so much to the table themselves that it, without that underlying infrastructure, people aren't really, they're not making the effort. Now we're going to have that underlying infrastructure that these programmers can depend upon so they don't have to invent that. Huge, I think. I'm really, really excited about this. 
Yeah, and and to be clear, uh, video for Linux does what it does very, very, very well. It's just that um, it would be nice if there were more things that video for Linux could do. But I'm not so sure uh, this replaces it either. It might be incorporating video for Linux, from what I maybe. read. Maybe that's well, a question we'll ask the dev. Yeah, it would be. You don't think so? It would seem. But no, and here's why: because uh, video for Linux is it, it. I mean, that is essentially what grabs that video device, right? So, I mean, uh, here's what here's what could happen. What could happen is uh, Pinos uh, could sit on top of video for Linux and pull in a video for Linux device first, yeah, and yeah. then Pinos would control it. But why I would like why what would be advantageous about Pinos talking directly to the the hardware would be that. Uh, it might be, they might be One able to layer. make it so that it's more accommodating towards uh, a cable getting disconnected or reconnected. Yeah, yeah. I'm a little. That's one of my. If the, you know, if this, I don't want this to be like a phone on thing, where phone on mm-hmm. sits on top of G Streamer, which sits on top of Pulse Audio, which sits on top right. of the audio driver, right? Right. I mm-hmm. don't want it to be like that. I, I I don't want this to be something that sits on top of this or sits on top of this, and so we'll, we'll have to see yeah. where that goes because that's a question. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk about OwnCloud. You and I are OwnCloud users. OwnCloud 8.1 is going to be, I think the rumor on the street is coming out Tuesday or Wednesday as we record this. So there's a good chance as you're listening to this show, it may already be out or hitting a mirror near you. Uh, 8.1 has some nice new features. Uh, encryption migration wizard, which is nice. Uh, you also can now hook up external Samba storage. So if you have an OwnCloud server on your LAN, that might be a nice way to add some additional capacity. Client syncing and sharing has been improved. A lot of functionality regarding initiating mailings from the OwnCloud server has been improved and, and, and streamlined, really. And uh, functionalities that involve certificate handling uh, for, like, you know, App Store certs and their, their own cloud apps, all fixed up. Now, I, uh, I, 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 I still continue to, I still continue to suffer from some bugs with own cloud uh, sync. I had some really, really bad ones this week. Uh, I'm not going to go into a huge rant about it, but uh, I, I probably will be pulling back again from file sync. I think though, for like card dev and cal dev and and those, you know, syncing to your phone, it's still really solid for that. But for large file sync operations. I'm done for a while. It just, yeah. I got burned super, super bad on Wednesday. Really, really super bad. And I lost a lot of data. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I did too. I, I, I mean, not Wednesday, but uh, I got burned too. I got burned with, uh, I had large, large files. And, um, and it, yeah, it bit me. And then the, the thing that was really frustrating was when I went to talk to people about it, it appears that I was like the only one that didn't know that you're, that, you're not supposed to trust OwnCloud with a lot of big files. Um, I, 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 in fact, I was. It was scale actually. I think is around the time that it was, and I was walking around and I was telling everyone, "I'm like, yeah, I lost a bunch of data. I lost, you know, some video files." And they went, "Why'd you put those video files in OwnCloud? You don't. That's not really. It's not really ready for that yet." And I'm like, "Well, nobody told me." So, I actually thought it was. Um, I thought it'd be great for that. I was hoping because then I was hoping I could go on the web page and preview them from time to time. And well, I think that I think that in OwnCloud's defense, I think at some point it will it will get there. I think that it's just not quite there yet. And uh, what version of OwnCloud were you running? Mm, I want to say 8.0. 8.01, I think. It was 7-something that, that bit me. Uh, and I thought I remember talking... Um, yes, at, we did. With, okay, and yeah. they said that they thought they got some of that stuff fixed. Yes, so I was did. hoping that maybe it was resolved. Right. Yes, I, I was I sitting at the table my, when you had I, that conversation. Worth, I haven't gotten over my burn either, to the point that I haven't... I, I have it installed, I, but I, I don't seriously use it for anything, because uh, it just... Like I, like you said, you get bit that bad, and then, I may never be able to go back. Yeah, and it's actually yeah. the second time, and both times, it, it. So the first time we had a complete backup, and I managed to recover mm. everything. This time, not so lucky because it was like ch- things that had happened in the last hour, 
So yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, this has been a, there has been a fascinating story developing really quickly over this weekend around uh, the Sailfish OS and getting on this really, really, really slick Yoda phone that's got that uh, that like that e-ink back display that always on. Do I have a picture of it here? Yeah, here it is. Like, Look at that phone. No, have you seen that thing? Man, that yeah. is a slick phone. So over the weekend, it broke that they were going to be abandoning Android and switching to Sailfish OS. And then began a weird round of he said, she said, confirmed and denials coming out even from, like, the CEO and all across the board. Uh, so it's really tough to say because even while there's, deni- even while there's denials happening, uh, the Russian government says they want to start using an OS not controlled by American company, which would be Android. They say they've chosen Sailfish OS. There's even a report that Russian minister held a Yoda phone running Sailfish. What's more, Yoda Vice reps have confirmed in a Russian forum that the firmware does actually exist. They also said that it's not nearly ready to be shipped yet. But in short, there is a Sailfish firmware out there, at least according to people on the forums, being developed by the Russian government. But it's so, not the whole phone switching to Sailfish OS. But it was... It got a lot of a lot of traction over the weekend. What what drew you to this story? The the fact that I th- you seem to be getting uh, progressively more and more, and I don't know what the I don't know what the polite term is, but concerned about Google and the direction <laughs> that they're going. Um, oh, and it, it seems like the only other boat to jump into from Google is the Apple boat. And I, I don't know that one is drastically better than the other, but. Uh, I understand what you're coming from, where you say you can make us, you can make it draw a line in the sand and say I'm going to make my decisions to use these devices or this software because <clears throat> I'm going to take a stand for freedom and open source and all that is great in principle. The problem is when it comes down to practice and you you don't have you go back to applications from the 1990s that really sucks. The thing that I have a lot of hope about uh, Sailfish is I feel like it it that has the a potential to give you everything you want out of modern OS because you can install APKs on it. So you can have Telegram, you can have uh, you know, Snapchat if you want, sure, you can yeah. have the Facebook app, the Twitter app, all those stuff, yeah. all that stuff is going to be there and it's actually Linux on the phone. Um, so I, I, I can't say that I'm, I'm, a, I'm 100% certain that that is the future of mobile or anything like that, yeah. but I feel like that is our best shot. I'll give you a, here's, I'll tell you why it excites me. And it doesn't really have anything to do with Google. Um, because honestly, if that was a huge, huge, huge issue of mine, I could probably pick a phone like the Nexus 5 and run Cyanogen or some other ROM that's been pretty de-Googled. You know, I mean, there's mm-hmm. a lot of ways around that. Or like you said, I could switch to iOS or I could run Fire. I mean, there's other things I could do. Right. What I liked about this story is this phone with this e-paper back that's got this always-on e-paper back that is, to me... <clears throat> At least I think that's the back of the phone. Maybe it's the front that changes. Either way, it's something new and different. I just, it would be so fun to have to have something new and different come to the market that runs an open source operating system. Because right now what I have seen is, hey, look at that great phone from two years ago that now I can get an, an open source operating system on. And I'm not even going right. to, not, yeah. not any particular, uh, but all of them. Mm-hmm. All of them mm-hmm. are at this state right now. I want to be excited about the phone. I want to buy a piece of hardware that's awesome. I want to buy a piece of hardware yeah. that's cutting edge technology. I'm in, I, I, honestly, that's why I'm in Linux. I like cutting-edge technologies. Yeah. One, not the reason, but it's one of the reasons, right? It's, hey, so I'm not very excited about any of these phones on the market. This thing, though, I, hell yes, I'd pick one of these things up running Sailfish OS just to try it out. Yeah. You bet. And this thing might have a rocking battery. I'd be walking around being like, yeah, it's run Sailfish OS. I got an e-paper display. I got crazy battery. That's all the kinds of things I'd like to have about a phone, and I'd love for it not to run Android. That would be amazing. Yeah. That's what excited me yeah. about this story. 
but before we even had a chance to talk about it, it was already confirmed not happening. Like, they jumped all over that. Don't you worry. We're not leaving Android. Don't you worry. <laughs> That's crazy. That's crazy. Don't freak out. I was like, okay, all right. Okay, I was just getting a little excited. I'm sorry. <laughs> they shut that one down. Blame the bloggers. I do. I, I want to get. Uh, I want to do. Uh, I want to have a chance to actually look in uh, more in depth to uh, to Selfish OS. I've been told by numerous people every time I go on the air and say that I really wish I had a mobile platform that ran actual Linux, or I wish I had a way a solution for actual Linux. Everyone uh, writes in and says, "Oh, well, you should try Selfish. You should try Selfish." And uh, I came really close that last time I was in studio to just buying a Selfish OS phone yeah. right then and there and being done with it. But there was some wonky thing with it wouldn't work on the networks in you the could, US or something. Next time like you're up, you can run my you can you can grab my Nexus Five for a couple of weeks if you want to try it. It runs pretty good yeah. on there. Yo, does it? Yeah, I have to give it a shot. Anyway, it's actually it's, it's an OS I think I could really get behind. And, it's actually really I easy to try with multi ROM. You can dual boot regular Android, Lollipop, and Sailfish OS, and Firefox OS, and Ubuntu Touch, and you can just try them all out on one device. It's, it's really cool. Uh, I gotta talk about this this story. It's one of these. Anytime we talk about wine. Uh, it gets a little controversial. People out there do not like the idea of games using Wine to come to Linux. Others are just happy to have additional library or games available in the Linux library. Um, and James Ramey runs uh, Crossover, the Code Weavers uh, outfit that does uh, Crossover uh, for uh, Mac and Linux. And uh, they just announced that they're going to be bringing DirectX 11 support over to Linux, which is going to open up a whole new library of recent Windows games. Now, here's the cool thing about this, Noah is they're going to push this stuff upstream to the Wine project, too. So this isn't just for crossover users. This is eventually going to come to all Wine users. So this means, in general, uh, the DirectX 11 stuff is coming here. Now, I, I wanted to point out a couple of things that I thought were particularly interesting in this interview that don't have anything really to do uh, with the DirectX 11 port, other than this one thing. Only really one person at Codeweavers has been working on this. Uh, Henry Verbert or Rebeat is his or Verbet is his name. I'm sorry. He's uh, he's the only real one that's really been working on it a lot. Uh, he's been working on the Wine Project for years. He's the foremost authority on gaming and graphics in the Wine community. He's considered to be an expert by most peers. So anything graphics related, it comes down to Henry. He's really good. He's a rock star. They say, uh, and they say there's going to be GPU improvements from DirectX 9 and up for Wine games. It's not just DirectX 11. So this this version that's hitting is going to improve it across the board. But here is the interesting bit. They got Jeremy to share details on the costs for companies to port games to Linux. What does it cost? As, what is it? What would it cost you, as a game shop, to move your game over to Linux using their technology or something like it? This is always very fascinating because if you can get to this number, if you can figure out right. what that cost is, then you can figure out how many games the developer has to sell under Linux to break even, and so you can see right. how likely it is developers are going to choose to release for the Linux platform. So it was really great that Jeremy gave out this information because it actually helps put a lot of this uh, into pr perspective. He says about 50% of people come over to Crossover to try to save costs initially, but depending on what they want to do, like what kind of port they have, it depends on how much it's going to cost them. The average port for a game is about 15000 US dollars. That's about a month's worth of work wow. for the Mac or Linux version. It can be as low as $5,000 or as high as $50,000, depending on the game. Now, uh, a blog I uh, Oh, this actually is Boiling Steam. Hold on. Now, this is fascinating. So, Boiling Steam, the same, the same uh, site that got this interview with Jeremy, and Jeremy's a nice mm -hmm. guy, uh, went out and did the numbers. That, okay, well, so now we know the numbers. If, if this is how much it costs, roughly, and Jeremy's co company, Code Weavers, is probably somewhat uh, price competitive with the market, then we get an idea of how many games developers actually have to sell under Linux. Let's go with the medium price that Jeremy said, which is $15,000 to convert a game to Linux using their technology. 
he figures that if the and if you figure an average sale price of a game is is uh, something like fifteen dollars or something like that, he's looking at different games. They have to sell somewhere around sixteen thousand to to uh, sixteen hundred copies. If they have a lower price game, or if they have a mid 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 price game with an average price porting cost, they could actually break even at sixteen hundred Linux sales. Sixteen hundred Linux sales at the fifteen dollar U.S. price. It looks like. And then, of course, if it's more than that, then it's more unit sales. Uh, and then he compares this to other games and how it's actually doing. And we're right, basically what it comes down to is we are right on the line. We are right on the line where they can break even now. And so if they're willing to break even today for a longer-term investment, it's working out for some of these developer shops. Of course, it depends on how they port it, too. And it's not, some of these technologies are not always native ports. So I don't... Uh, wine is one of those things where I'm, like, I'm split 50-50. Because on one hand, I am super super thankful that the technology exists and not only that crossover specifically mm -hmm. has enabled me to switch more people to linux than any other pro probably more than any other one project yeah um you know being able to run office right on on right on linux and, and that was more important uh, five six years ago than it is now um but it's it, it, it always it has always played a, a pivotal role um but on the other hand i guess there are some people that get like super excited about it and oh we'd rather have it on wine honestly i'm embarrassed that the technology has to exist it is it is it's disappointing to me that there isn't a market just to port games directly to linux and that we have to use that compatibility layer to 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 get people um, over to the platform so and i have and i and i switch day by day uh, you know yeah. which way i kind of want to go with it but overall i'm i'm glad the technology exists i look at it um, like this for for the gaming aspect if you want to bring mm -hmm. old, uh, nostalgic games over that the developers will yes. never be interested in spending any money on to port to Linux, bring those over with Wine. Future games, please write those natively. For me, same story. Crossover enabled me to run Outlook in a very exchange-heavy, an Exchange 5.5, later Exchange 2000 yep. company. And without mm -hmm. Outlook, I couldn't use the Linux desktop. Evolution wasn't doing the gerb back then, and so Crossover mm -hmm. came in and gave me the ability to open up Excel spreadsheets and uh, use Outlook and allowed me to switch... In, in a sea of windows, I was an island of Linux, thanks to Crossover. Mm -hmm. What um, What do you think? Uh, I, I I guess I I guess I I just don't. I guess what what I'm hopeful is that this increases the market share. That you get a couple people like you that say, well, now I can play that one game that I was looking for, and then we uh, uh, as a as a user base we increase. But to me, it seems like when when the games reach their the end of their useful life, when they're not going to be making a lot of money off of them, why not open source that stuff? I yeah. mean, I know that's a totally different topic yeah. altogether, but yeah. why not just take that stuff and say that game is back from the '90s? We don't really sell it anymore. People are pirating it anyway. Why not just take the code, whoever owns it, and open source it and let that game live on? Hmm. Either way, I mean, that would be nice, obviously. But I'm that's I'm I'm glad to see crossover or code weavers. Working on this, you know, pushing this upstream, that way anybody can take advantage of this. It's not just for games. There's all kinds of uses. It means we don't have to wait around for companies like Eon to make a wrapper for us. The rest of the community can take advantage of this, too. So that's pretty cool. Links to all the stories we talked about are in the show notes if you would like to read up on any of these more on your own. But Noah, that's all the news for this week. A lot of topics we've followed over the years on this show have evolved a lot as the Linux desktop has evolved. Your photo workflow, at least my photo workflow, is definitely one of those things. New tools, new technology, and new ways to do things, and new services to take advantage of are always changing things up. So today, Noah and I, who both have a fairly decent photo collection, uh, Noah, yours is probably greater than mine because I let my wife take the bulk of the photos, but the ones I have 
are really pretty important to me. They're pretty important, like family events and uh, important community events and things like that. And so over the years, I've been evolving my ways to sort of manage my photos. And so today, uh, after you and I were talking, we realized we have a few tricks and tips we want to share with people. And what's, what I love about this is if you're like me and you take like a few photos with your camera phone, or if you're like Noah or Alex, who's going to come on in a minute, where you take more of your photos with higher-end cameras, we've got solutions for all of you. So before we dive into all of that, I want to talk about our segment sponsor, OSCON going on July 20th through the 24th in Portland, Oregon. Uh, this is an event that Noah and I will be at, and I'd love to see you at it. Why? If you work at any level in open source, I think there's something at this event for you. So obviously, if you're a Linux user, that's kind of a slam dunk. But you probably work in a business or a corporation that uses a lot of Linux or open source technologies, maybe under the hood. And that's one of the fascinating things that Noah and I discovered when we would talk to people at OSCON is how pervasive, even in, in companies that were like, uh, it was things from... Um, like how they track ratings on, on, on televisions, like all of this big data yeah. metrics being powered by Linux and open source that Noah and I, I, I think that was probably one of the most surprising conversations we had because it just, it was totally unexpected and it gave us great insights into how pervasive open source is. And so this is a great area there. Also, you know, if you're looking to get further into the field, or if you've got a lot of items on your learning to-do list, like languages or new tools, or if you just have questions you need to get answers to that have been plaguing you at work, OSCON is worth the trip. And new in 2015, they've got a lot of great events. A new two-day two event on leadership and culture change within your organization. So if you're trying to push somebody to maybe consider open source, an organization to take another look at open source, and you're realizing you might have to make some culture change, they're going to double down on that this year. They've got a two-day course on that. But here's the best part. If you use the promo code LINUX, you get a 20% discount on the gold, platinum, or silver, or bronze passes. Wow. Gold, platinum, silver, or bronze passes. 20% off when you use the promo code LINUX. And Noah, for a limited time, if they tweet us at JupiterSignal with hashtag OSCON, we're going to give mm -hmm. away a bronze pass, which is really badass, too. Yeah. Yeah, because those conferences uh, don't always come cheap. Mm -mm. Um, and so that's super <laughs> generous of the O'Reilly uh, you know, people to, to, to offer that. Not to mention, you get the chance to come hang out with us, say hello, shake hands, and... Uh, get a chance to attend a, a great conference. Yeah, we're going to have a meetup, so if you want to meet up with us uh, at OSCON, just we'll be there on Wednesday, July 22nd. Come say hi to us at OSCON. Uh, and uh, then after after the OSCON event, around 5 p.m., we'll be at the Spirit of 77 is the plan right now, depending on how many people we have showing. If you're going to meet us, go to the site and let us know. Go to meetup.com. Or I'm sorry, yeah, meetup.com slash jupiterbroadcasting. And then in there, just otherwise the URL is crazy. Once you're in there, just click the OSCON meetup and RSVP if you would so we know people are going to make it. Uh, this is going to be a great event to go to, and it's a great one in Portland. I've met a lot of great people at OSCON, um, and, and, and I've already got a couple of meetings scheduled. Like, it's already going to be a productive trip, and we haven't even packed our gear yet. We're going to have interviews we'll bring back from OSCON for you guys as well, if you can't make it. But I really encourage you to try it. There's a lot of events out there, um, and uh, the O'Reilly guys know how to really put on a convention. They're really professional at this kind of thing. They really know what they're doing. OSCON.com. Can they've done this for 17 years? Uh, well, it shows. It does show. I mean, they really yeah. is a pro operation, and there are some operations that are that are run super well, and theirs is one of them. And uh, like, I've already gotten emails from their uh, media coordinator, Maureen. She's great. She's already contacted me to make sure we're on track for all our media stuff we need. Like, already checking the boxes we need to check. It's going to be a good conference. OSCON.com, and use the promo code Linux to get twenty percent off your pass. And a thanks to OSCON for sponsoring our segment this week. Now, Noah, um, <clears throat> speaking of meeting up with us in person, those mm -hmm. who have met up with us in person might know Alex because he comes to our <clears throat> a lot of our events. He's often a big help at the booth. And uh, so you sat down with him. And I, I, do you want to, is it all in the video or do you need to set this up at all before we uh, roll this? 
Yeah, well, uh, so uh, Alex is a, we've been friends for a long time. He's probably my oldest friend, and uh, he has a real passion for photography. And so when uh, when we decided that we were going to do photography on Linux this week, it just so happened Alex was in town, and I'm like, hey, we have to sit down and talk about this because obviously I don't have any friends that don't use Linux. So uh, <laughs> Yeah, because if he's your friend, he's going to have to use Linux, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, he, uh, he uh, obviously that's, that's his operating system. That's what he uses exclusively, and he has found <laughs> ways to do all of his photography in Linux. Now, the nice thing about Alex is when he got involved in photography, he had already been using Linux. So mm. he didn't approach it from a... I use Adobe Photoshop or Lightroom or whatever it is the software that people use nowadays and how do I make that work in Linux? Uh. He approached it a different way. He approached it from I want to take my photos, I want to fix these things. How do I do those things in Linux? And it's kind of a neat perspective. Yeah. So, so he started yeah. so it sort of starts without a bias and he's able to just kind of uh, take it and go with it. Exactly. All right, interesting. Well, uh, so I'm curious to see how his workflow goes and then we'll tip we'll touch on our workflows right after this. So sometimes the software that you use to do some of the tasks you have to do means you have to be good at those tasks to begin with. So for example, photography. Now, I've played with photography, I've played with cameras, but I am by no means a professional. Alex is not at all a professional. By no means a professional either, but it's his hobby and he does it on a daily basis. He takes the camera with him everywhere he goes. Doesn't matter where we're going, in an airport, uh, out of the country, in the country, every city, every place, he's always got a camera with him. So I invited him to sit down with us and talk to us a little bit about his workflow with cameras because he does all of his processing on Linux. Linux. So uh, there are two things to producing photography in Linux. You need to be know about the photography and you need to know about the Linux. Now I know about the Linux and I guess I know about the photography. He knows about the photography. So uh, Alex, could you start by telling me a little bit about uh, what it is that you look for when you go to buy a camera? I look for in a camera now Technical specs like megapixels and stuff like that aren't, aren't really that important. I mean, they are. You're going to notice a better picture with a higher megapixel. But what I, what I look for ultimately is that it's easy to use. It fits your hands. It has a manual mode that's easy to easy to run. I don't shoot in anything but manual anymore. Um, and it's compatible with a wide variety of accessories. Now, they've all got speed lights and such and, and uh, lenses and such that you can buy for them. But I believe, in my opinion, Nikon's the best for that. The first reason I got into Nikon is because Noah actually has a box full of lenses, and he said I could borrow any of them at any time so long as I bought an Icon camera. He has a $3,000 lens, he has a $20 lens. But, but the, the point is I could borrow them at any time. So that was the original reason I went to Nikon. Now that I've used a Nikon almost exclusively, my first camera was a D80, this is a D7000, which is further along in that generation. I've fallen in love with the fact that with my hands on the camera, and my eye on the viewfinder, I can manipulate all the controls and get the camera to do whatever I want without ever taking my hands out of this position. And I've heard, I've never really used a Canon for more than about 30 seconds, that you have to go into menus and change things and take your eye off the viewfinder to set, set things like as simple as ISO. So I delete my photos off my card. <coughs> Takes a little while. By the way, it took almost an hour, almost two hours to import all 600 of these raw files. I need to do that a little bit more often. Once they're deleted off the card, I put them in the uh, camera and I end up formatting them in the camera as well so the card is bone stock ready to go. But from this point I go and I, I kind of look through for significant ones that I want for uh, for certain things. Um, for example we did some long exposure stuff at the range of uh, Tannerite blowing up which was pretty cool. Um, but hey, stop that. So uh, for example I'm looking for certain things that I want to upload in the next few days to uh, social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, stuff like that. We made an American flag thing for 4th of July here. 
And stuff that I want to edit right away, stuff that I want to keep. Most of these are going to be junk. Some are pretty good. Um, air show stuff, there was uh, a few specific things from an air show that I wanted to update. Pick the photos I want to update and then I'll, I'll, we'll go through the workflow that I actually use to edit those photos. So we'll start, say for example, this one here. Actually, that's not in focus at all, so let's not use that one. Let's see if I have any of those in that series that are in focus. There we go. That's cool, F18 with a vapor trail. So what I do with my workflow is I note the file name 3690, and then I go into Darktable, and I find that file and import it. So that would be June, yeah, 3690. Now my philosophy has always been minimal editing, do as much as you can on the camera to get the picture right. So as you can see, it's centered in the frame. It's granted this was one of maybe three or four shots that ended up right, but centered in the frame, the exposure is a little bit off, but not too bad. Uh, but generally what I wanted from the photo is there. The editing, editing I do is to get rid of errors that we can't get rid of, like lens error, stuff like that. And I've got my presets set up in Darktable here to do that. So lens correction, Darktable knows what lens it was taken at. It's all pu pushed in the EXIF data on the file. I just turn lens correction on, and that fixes all the errors from the lens. It does give you a little bit of pincushion or barrel distortion, so you have to crop that out. But beyond that, I don't really do much editing. So I do that. I crop it to whatever size I want. For for example, if I'm uploading to Instagram, I'm going to crop it square. If I'm uploading to Facebook, I generally do uh, three to four or whatever. You know, I, I generally try and get it something that's you know right size for a computer monitor, 16 to 9 if I'm going to do a wallpaper. Uh, if I'm going to print it, I, I do it print size, but I crop. So uh, say, for example, if I'm going to upload this to Instagram, I'll crop square. I try and set it rule of thirds, something like this. It's going to fill the entire frame. I don't know if rule of thirds is appropriate for this. Something like that right there would be what I'd crop it for. And then this is a little too bright for my liking with the background, so I would actually come in here and change maybe the background a little bit. And I would do that with exposure and just drop the exposure value. Actually, that looks like crap. But that looks about right to me. It's kind of boring against a white background, but still kind of cool. That's almost the, the limit of my editing. I don't really do much more than that. I export it as a high quality JPEG and I upload it to whatever, <laughs> upload it to whatever uh, uh, website or, or wherever I'm sharing it with my friends from there. Beyond that, that's all the editing I do. Rule of thirds, this is uh, not a rule, hard and fast, it's a, it's a suggestion. So for example, let, let's go to a different picture here. Uh, back into Shotwell, we'll pick something from earlier, earlier today, shooting, or uh, we'll go with the Sophie and Sarah picture here. Do you mind if I do that? Okay. So a picture of Sophie right here. Um, Generally, the eyes attracted to a subject not right in the center. Right in the center, there's dead space. It's boring. But let's say we, we're going to edit this picture here, uh, 3856. So I'll, again, import into Darktable. Dark room, dark table.
Now, benefits of shooting in RAW is I can change the color balance after the fact. But so, so for example, to crop this for, uh, let's say I wanted to print this, I would crop it at. Uh, three to four. Now the subject of the picture here, Sophie, you would want her, notice I have my guidelines set up for rule of thirds, you would want her, the subject of the photo, to be somewhere in that cross. That would be the, where your eye is drawn in the picture. Now this photo, what's cool about it is we have two things that we can put somewhere near those crosses and have two cool things rule of thirds wise that we can draw to. And again, this isn't a hard and fast rule at all. It's, uh, it's a suggestion to make your photos more appealing to the eye. Now with things set in the upper third or lower third or in one of those corners, it's, it's more visually appealing. It's, it's, I don't know who came up with that or what artist figured that out, but they figured out that that's where your eye's drawn. If I were to print this, I'd crop it like this, run the lens correction, and then uh, color balance to me looks fine, and then export it and send it to the printer. Very nice. So that is, uh, that's like how a real Linux user uses a photo workflow under Linux. And now, uh, I like that. It makes me realize that I could be using uh, these tools a lot better than I am now. I have a couple of rough tools I wanted to go over with you, but did you have any wrapping thoughts on the video before I jump into those? Nope. Okay. So I got to be honest with you. I've never been able to commit to a full-on photo management program. Like, I just have not been able to stick to one. I don't know what it is about me. Uh, I... I, I Maybe I like the Unix philosophy. I like a little. I like a lot of little tools to get one gerb done. So that's mm -hmm. my route. So I, I, I do. I, I do a couple of things, Noah. Let's start with the uh, with the import process. I have a couple different ways I bring I bring photos into Linux. Uh, my most common right now is I use a program called Rapid Photo Downloader. And uh, Rapid Photo Downloader I love for two reasons. Number one, it does what it says. It's, it's amazingly fast. It's the fastest way to import images onto your computer, even if you're just bringing them in from another directory. Okay? Uh, but it does something else that I like a lot, is it'll simultaneously make a backup copy to an alternate location during the import. So I can import to my, my, my ultimate destination and a backup destination at the same time I'm doing the import. I think that's pretty slick. Something else Rapid Photo uh, Downloader will do is it will standardize some of the file names for me. And since I'm primarily, I'm going to show you why that's important, but I primarily am using the file system to organize my pictures. So having some that normalizes the uh, file names is pretty nice. That's Rapid Photo Downloader. Once I bring it onto the computer and uh, I've got it installed into a, into a directory, then I like to use different programs depending on the job. But the one that I just keep going back to over and over again under the GNOME desktop, it's just simple GThumb. Just <laughs> simple GThumb. It's super fast. It renders the photos really fast, uh, so I feel like it's great for that. I can go through, I can preview photos easily. Uh, I can get some basic t jobs done. I can do some basic markup in here. Uh, I, I think it's just a nice program, and it goes through the directories. It chews things up nice and fast. Uh, so <clears throat> GThumb, which uh, I love too, because here you go full screen, and you, it gives a ton of room here to the uh, to the pictures. So you can see, like when you're sitting down with the wife, you can sit here and review the pictures really easily. Uh, and it gives a great bit of real estate for that. And you can always right-click on the photo, and you can, you can go right to where it's at. You can move it to the trash. And this is a great way for, I'm like, ah, this one sucks. I don't need to keep that. I'll just move that to the trash. I don't get sentimental about these things. Plus, I combine this with a backup to Google Photos. So the, the photos that I work and keep on and all that stuff, these are the ones I bring with Rapid Photo Downloader. I look at them with GThumb. I edit them maybe in Darktable, maybe not really. Uh, but uh, then I also keep a copy on Google Photo. However, since these are the ones that I modify, these are the ones that uh, I, 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 I would rather keep out of all of them. Like the ones on Google Photo, I just consider like as a, like a backup. Um, mm -hmm. 
I'm pretty concerned about keeping these safe and private, too, because they're pictures of my kids and stuff like that. And so right. I've gone back and forth on a lot of ways on how to back this up, how to back up all of my photos in a way that's not going to kill me in cost, but I'd like mm-hmm. it to be off-site, so cloud. Uh, <clears throat> you know, I saw, I saw a bumper sticker that said cloud. Don't call it cl- oh, this is Actually, it's from the Free Software Foundation that I think about it. The Free Software Foundation has a bumper sticker that you can get that says, don't call it the cloud. Call it other people's computers. You're storing things yeah, on other people's yeah, computers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so uh, when I think of it like that, and I think about the fact that it's like pictures of my kids' butts or whatever, I start to get mm-hmm. like, all right, now I'm now I have sort of a threshold of what I expect from this, and I've I've gone around a lot on how to properly back up my family photos in a way that I'm I'm comfortable with, and a way that I think is going to be around for a long time. And I'll tell you, Noah, what I keep coming back to over and over again for this particular function, I don't use it for everything, but I keep coming back to Spider Oak. I know there's a lot of alternatives out there. I know SyncThing is open source and it's a great it's a great solution. I really like Spider Oak. First of all, one of the things I like about Spider Oak, and you can do this with some other solutions too, is it doesn't make me conform to any particular folder structure. I can tell Spider Oak to go download all of my crazy ass picture folder structures. It doesn't have to be like in the drive. Dropbox folder. So that's one of the mm-hmm. nice things about Spider Oak. But the really nice thing about Spider Oak is they have it's zero knowledge backup. They have zero knowledge about your data. All encryption is handled locally, and it still offers sync capabilities across all your machines. And that's another thing. Is enough of my machines have like one terabyte spinning rest in them that a lot of those machines I'd like to have a copy of my photo collection. That's another way I back things up is I have it distributed across my machines, and I use Spider Oak to do this particular bit of data distribution. And then I have I can use the tools on any of my computers to look at the photos. Like the photos I was just showing you here on Gthumb during the show, mm-hmm. those were synced using Spider Oak. I didn't take those photos and import them here on on, uh, on, uh, on this computer. That, no, of course not. I went out and I, I imported them on my computer at home after we went out there and I used Spider Oak to sync them across all of my machines. So I, <clears throat> they're not an advertiser. I don't make any money telling you this, but I just really think that it was a it was a great uh, it was a it was one of the great solutions, and I've come back to it over and over again. So go check it go check it out. Spider Oak, spideroak.com, and uh, I really liked it. So a while back, I actually tried Spider Oak, but I I ran into some problems right early on. It worked fine on the Ubuntu machine that I had originally installed uh, to test it on, but I went to move it onto my laptop. I had Fedora on it, um, and couldn't get the client to work correctly mm-hmm. and it wasn't I'm not saying that the client doesn't work on mm-hmm. Fedora it quite possibly did maybe it certainly maybe does now um, but it was just one of those things where I just didn't really feel like fighting with it and honestly I had other backup solutions yeah. in place to begin with you know and I, I guess I, I'll show you I mean this is the spider oak client right here I hope I'm probably showing something horrible on my system but uh I, I, I don't know. I, I do find it to be a little slow. I find it to be a little bit cumbersome. It works, though. I don't have any problem with this functionality. Like, it just seems like it takes a long time to start up. It seems like it takes a long time to read the file system. But because I'm using it as a backup, I don't mind that too much. Uh, so I think probably the issues you had were probably worked out. But Noah, maybe, you know, I bet you and the chat room would probably like this solution a little better. Just good old classic R-Sync, but with a little yeah. lipstick. Uh, it's called G-R-Sync, and uh, it's as basic as it gets to using R-Sync. I mean, it's really, you could do it with just a couple of clicks and you're done. But the really nice thing is, is this is a great way to move your photos off to a NAS or external USB or whatever kind of storage. Or, you know, even hell, Dropbox, Google Drive, sync them in there, mm-hmm. right? Uh, this is GRSync is a really nice application. And you can set up some profiles, you guys. This is something worth looking into. And uh, it has some cool functionality because it's basically using one of the coolest tools in Linux, RSync under the hood. And you could always do the command line version too. But if you like a GUI, GRSync is a good way to go. Have you tried that one? 
Yeah, I've looked into it. Uh, honestly, as you might imagine, um, I think that's a great tool for other people. But I, to me, rsync is such a vital tool to my day job to begin with. Yeah, I'm so comfortable with it on the command line, line that mm -hmm. it, it almost feels it. It honestly, it feels weird to uh, to open up a graphical client to do something with rsync <laughs> to me. And that's that's a that's a personal thing, and I admit that that's a backwards way of thinking. You're backwards, um, Noah. Graphical interface. Well, graphical interfaces do make more sense from a, from a logic perspective and a I can figure it out kind of perspective. Um, but for me, it just I can rattle off rsync commands. Yeah. So fast that it just is not nothing. And you know what else? The man page is pretty good too. To be honest with you, yeah. there's lots of good examples yeah. online. Uh, yeah. So let's talk about one that you wanted to put in here because I don't know if either one of us used this one, but Corel Aftershot seems to get a lot of yeah. uh, love from folks you know. So uh, I was actually back at uh, at uh, Self. We were in the car, we were driving, and we we're, were having a conversation about photo editing. And um, a couple of people in the car did all their photo editing on Linux. And I brought up Darktable, and I said, you know, that's the only program I've really had a whole lot of experience. And they said, have you tried uh, Corel Aftershot? And I said, yeah, I've heard of it. And I did at one time uh, download a demo and tried it. Yeah. And it was nice. It just, it was, I just, I don't have the time because I don't, I'm not really a photographer. I don't really have the time to invest myself to learn new tools. And I kind of already know how to do the basic things I want to do in Darktable. So I kind of stuck with it. And they kind of went off the rails. And they, oh, you don't understand. Aftershot is so much better than Darktable. It is the bee's knees. It is amazing. Really? And when I brought it up to you, you had said that um, there were some rumors that it had been discontinued. Well, the, the, the Linux version had kind of stagnated, yeah. Is that true? So that's kind of unfortunate because uh, it, from from the people that have used it, it seems like that is the program to use if you want to do some really serious professional photo editing sure. uh, in Linux. Sure. Um, and I really can't speak to it either way. I can just tell you that the, the people that know more than I do about it, that's that's what they're telling me is that's the program. You don't to necessarily have. you don't necessarily need your photo management program to be updated all the time. You just don't want it to be end of life either. That's the, you know right. It's yeah, sort of that yeah. sweet spot. It's kind of like it's kind of like your email client. You don't need Thunderbird mm -hmm. updated all the time. You just don't want it to be abandoned. That's how I So, and right now, I just glanced down at the chat room, and the first thing I see is Aftershot is what I use for all my uh, for all my photo editing. Now, QFrost right. Sys points out it's not free. Right. It is yep. commercial software. It does cost money, and it's not exactly cheap. I think it's sixty no. bucks. Yeah, um, and and so. when you when you download it, it'll it'll first time you run it, it'll say you can have a fully functional trial. Do you want to try the basic version or the pro version? And you can buy now, and it'll launch it up, and you can buy it. And it's in the Arch User Repository too, so you can just you can Packer Dash S Aftershot. <laughs> <laughs> you get it, uh, but you do have to pay for it uh, if you want to keep it. And I think probably no Darktable would be our, our recommendation, or maybe Digicam. Yeah. Digicam, really? Digicam yeah. too? Because you can do some editing in well, Digicam. I say, again, I, I go back to I would use Darktable for editing the photos. I would use Digicam yeah. for for organizing them. I and mean, not that you can't do photo editing. Like so, for example, I, I'll give you a, a, a perfect example. A lot of times, the only thing I do with the photo is I'll just I'll crop it. I just want to pull something out of it. And for that, honestly, I don't use either. I use GIMP. Because yep. a GIMP, I yep. have one tool. I drag what yep. I want. I click enter, and the photo, yep. the photo is this is, done. This is why uh, I actually just mostly use the file system because I like yeah. to, because I have learned how to do different edits using different programs, and I'm better mm -hmm. at it in those programs. So some stuff I bring mm -hmm. into GIMP, but not a lot. Some yep. stuff I bring in. It's so that's why I like the file system. But there's probably one other aspect we should touch on, and this. This next one is going to depend on your desktop environment, and I'll just go with the one that I know. Uh, if you're going to get really serious about photos, it's probably worth noting that desktop environments like GNOME and others have built-in color calibration and management tools, uh, so you can go in there and, and color calibrate your screen to properly look. And, and this is actually a pretty neat tool. To, so, like, for example, you want to make sure you can properly represent these images. They will show mm -hmm. you images in here that you can look at to see how your settings are making those appear to kind of give you an idea of how these tweaks will adjust the way 
your colors look on your screen. Kind of a neat, it's kind of a neat way to be able to just sort of dial this in a little bit. And I don't want to mess with it right now because it might screw with my uh, remote transfer to the capture rig, but I, if, uh, I think KD has similar tools and this is just worth going and visiting to make sure you're getting the best possible color out of your monitor. It's free, it's built in, so why not make that little tweak first? You can do it, I mean, you can do it to the eye, and of course if you want to get really serious, you can get tools to, to do that proper calibration, but whoever has time to do that, not I. No, is there any other tips or tricks you want to mention to people for uh, photo management under Linux? Oh, I think that pretty much covers it. Yeah, I, it's a, we have a lot of links in there, stuff that Alex covered, stuff that we've covered is in the show notes. Uh, give it a go and let us know what you think, and I will uh, consider converting uh, Angela from uh, Shotwell to uh, Digicam. Sounds like that might be, and if she likes it, it might be the way to go. Check it out. Mm -hmm. So find all that information over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. You'll find the links to everything we talked about. But that wraps up the Linux Action Show's look at the ultimate Linux photography workflow. And that brings us to the end of this week's broadcast. But we've got some emails to get to before we get out of here, Noah. And our first one comes in from Goriner. I think that's, I'm going to just look over that. He had a follow-up to uh, uh, Sippin' on Linux. He said he liked the uh, PBX on Linux. SIP episode was spot on. He says he has been using a PBA-based Linux distro since 2009. He's tried out Tribox, Elastix. That's the one I've tried out, Free PBX, which is his primary choice. He says he, have a, he has a few customers that run on free, B, free PBX, and it's been flawless for them. He has SIP providers. He likes Vitality as a primary provider and FlowRoute as a backup. That's a great idea is having a backup SIP provider. That makes a, really, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, Fatality, or however you say Fatality, has a really nice web interface and security features, offers cheap, DI, cheap DIDs, and those are the direct numbers, right, Noah, DIDs? Mm-hmm. Yep, and uh, terminations down. to fax to email numbers, which is fax to email was something we didn't even touch on in last week's mm -hmm. episode, which is another really nice feature of all of this. He says also Raspberry Pi makes a great PBX. What? Yeah. How about that? He's got an image of free, BB free PBX based on Debian for the Raspberry Pi 2 at raspberry-asterix.org. The Raspberry Pi 2 is a PBX, Noah. I'm all about that. What's up? That's awesome. Yeah, and actually that, that alone is what, what made me want to put this into the show, is that uh, if anyone's thinking about trying this out, you don't have to spend a lot of money to get started. You notice, not only does he say he does a Raspberry Pi 2, he says, I will say no more, it runs great. And then he gives a link to where you can install, uh, download the uh, pre-installed image file, which of course will be in the show notes. Um, but that is... That is what I would do if I wanted to start Asterix. In fact, if I was to go over and do it over again, that's how I would have started. Yeah. Just tried it on a Raspberry Pi. Maybe that wouldn't keep it there for production, but uh, it's a great way to get started because 30 bucks, and you can have a working PBX. And if you think about it, the over if you're not doing call recording, the actual uh, system requirements needed for a PBX isn't mm -hmm. terribly it's not doing much, much to begin with. Right? Mm -hmm. That's a great point. So you don't need something to suck it down a whole bunch of power when 90% mm -hmm. of the time, especially for my phone system, because I don't use the phone a lot. Uh, you want to take Jay Williams' email that came in here? Yeah, so Jay really Williams writes in and he says, I've never liked LastPass, so I never really use it. I've always used this combo, KeyPass on a Woola drive, encrypted cloud storage, and the KeyPass database is stored with a master password and key file. The key file has never been seen the online world has been and has been moved via USB stick. It has its quirks, but the setup has worked quite well for my home Linux rig, my Windows workstation, my boss will not let me use Linux for my workstation, sad face, <laughs> and my Android phone. Uh, the Wola drive does uh, does cost, but at 99 euros, well, 99 cent is that cent euros? Is that what I don't know what the cent equivalent of euro is? A month for five gigabytes, which is not bad. I like using Wola for this, as one of their big selling points is de-encryption. Is done, done on your, your local, local machine. machine. Yeah. 
Yeah, with only data from the wallet drive, one downside is that if you ever forget your password, the wallet drive cannot help you as the password is used exclusively for the de-encryption on the data on your local system and is never transmitted to Woola. Um, so uh, I wanted to, I, I guess I kind of wanted to ask you, I actually kind of just kind of followed in your footsteps when you started using LastPass. Uh, what's your take on LastPass versus uh, KeePass? And why did you choose what? Why did you choose to go ah. to LastPass and why have you not gone with ah. KeePass? So uh, my, my short version is for individuals, I prefer LastPass for groups and teams and companies, I prefer KeePass. Um, so like on a key pass, right, it'd be easy to have a database on a local LAN serve file server. People can open that up or some solution like that. It makes a lot of sense, I think, for a team. So like for AltaSpeed, I think you guys would be really, could be, you know, LastPass has all these features as well. For mm -hmm. an individual who needs to have really complex passwords on mobile um, and isn't very likely to spend a lot of time constantly investing in whatever security they need to have around their passwords, um, mm -hmm. And for somebody who moves around between a lot of machines and a lot of devices very frequently, and even if even if KeePass has lots of great sync options, it's got to be like fundamentally part of the functionality. For me, LastPass checks those boxes, and so I break it down like this. If I could have everything in the world, I would have all the functionality of LastPass and everything about it would be open source, it would basically be KeePass. But because mm -hmm. I'm not in a position where I'm going to properly manage KeePass for myself, and I also want right. a great, I want to have great mobile apps. I want to have, I want to have, a, I want to have a best-in-class uh, browser extensions for every browser out there I use. I know KeePass got a lot of this stuff, especially under Firefox, got a good one. But my, I mean, for me personally. Mm -hmm. LastPass walks that line of convenience and security. And because I have a crazy long master password, I change it every now and then, and I have two-factor authentication, I'm pretty comfortable with LastPass. Uh, but if I was going to have a bunch of people here working, like a whole bunch of people that needed to have access to my credentials, I would probably transition to KeePass. And I would probably have something that was just on the LAN that wasn't even up on a cloud or other people's computers. Perfect. All right. That's, uh, yeah, I guess. I, like I said, I... I, uh, I I don't have a, a strong preference one or the other. I've tried both of them. I think both of them were, would work for me. Yeah. Um, so Let me take on KCK's uh, email here. Casey writes in, I was on the fence for some time about getting a YubiKey until after Noah showed off his. Oh, yeah, that's right, your little one, your little mini. Mm -hmm. I bought two mm -hmm. immediately after the episode. I'm already using the uh, I'm already using the OTP for my WordPress and LastPass. What's OTP, Noah? Fill me one -time in. One-time password. Oh, oh, the one-time password generation for WordPress and LastPass. Mm -hmm. That's cool. But would love to know more about the setups that Noah uses for SSH to DigitalOcean or maybe his other systems. And if there's any documentation Noah might recommend, check out. So there's an ongoing joke at Jupiter Broadcasting. Uh, every time I get in the studio, Rakai likes to joke with everyone that if people would just listen to him the first time, they'd save themselves a lot of hassle. Um, so <laughs> when I was originally, when we were originally doing the YubiKey thing, he goes, you know, you should write that up into a tutorial for everyone. And I said, yeah, and, and a lot of time, work, whatever. Um, so I didn't do it. And ever since then, nope. I have people telegram me, and I walk them through setups. I actually, uh, a couple of days ago, I was sitting at work, and this guy telegrams me, and he goes, I need some help getting this set up. I'm like, well, no problem. Why not? So I'm like, head over to support.altaspeed.com. I'll log into your computer, help you set it up. Wow. So we got YubiKey working for him. And I, I've just, I've done this over and over and over again. And when I got yet another email from somebody Dude, asking let's me let's do a to segment. Do it, like, let's do a segment on it. Like, and then we'll make that the how-to. segment? Yeah. Okay. All right. So what I was about, what I was going to say was, I I have a tutorial ready and we'll link it. But I guess what I'm saying now we'll is do that it. we're going to do a segment. Why not? Uh, there's we're going to have we're going to do a, a last segment on on how to do it, and uh, and then we'll feature that. 
And maybe if people have other suggestions for that segment, because I think, uh, yeah. you know, making your SSH connections awesome and secure and easy, uh, there, there's mm-hmm. probably a lot of areas we could expand on that. So it's a good one, Casey. Yeah. Well, why don't we, let's start with that and expand it out to a full segment. I bet you we could do that. Sure. All right. Dave Sounds O good. writes in about SIP phones again. He says, hi, no, I was watching Linux Action Show this weekend and saw that you were getting into Asterix and IP phones. I love the show and your passion. We recently updated our office phones in the business in which I work. I am looking for a good home for an old IP phone, which are Polycom IP 430 phones. I have 20 or so of these phones that I'm willing to get and let go free of charge if somebody just pays the shipping. The Polycom IP430 are in pretty good shape, support power over Ethernet, and all work. I also have the power adapters for about 15 or so if you don't have power over Ethernet. I've been using IP phones and supporting various IP SIP systems for about seven years now. Feel free to email me if you're interested in these phones. Otherwise, I'll have recy- I'll either recycle them, because I don't think they're worth my time on eBay. So uh, Dave wrote in, and I obviously I jumped at the opportunity. I said, Dave, that is super generous, and that would be awesome. It turns out Dave actually lives just a couple miles, about mm. 200 miles away from me, 300 miles away from me. And, uh, That's I, more than I a couple, a, but okay. I, I sent him a, well, yeah, I sent him a, a FedEx call uh, tag, and uh, sure enough, two gigantic boxes of SIP phones arrived cool. at my doorstep. So I had chance, I didn't have a chance until last night to start putting them together. Um, but uh, I just a huge shout out and a thank you to Dave. He has fixed, I, I obviously, I was I was replacing my phone system, and I got the key ones done at the house, but there were a couple of other ones that I, I couldn't really afford to buy um, all these phones. And so when that box arrived, I now have a phone in my office, I have a phone here, cool. I have a phone yeah. everywhere in the house yeah. that I had it before. And that's all thanks to Dave, uh, who was g- generous and kind enough to donate some of his uh, older Isn't it funny phones, because yeah. like with SIP like it just you can have so many more phones and so it gets so much more convenient it's like if you've ever wanted a phone in a place if you've got connectivity yeah. you can have a phone there it's, right it's and the cool. thing is and like until we were wired so I, you know you nobody else probably knows this but so this week we we're uh, we we're finishing up the finalization of the studio here in Grand Forks and we were putting all the wires in and then the guys came in they were running network wires in the room and they said well how many do you want to the, the podium and I said well I want one for my desktop one for my laptop and one for a SIP phone I want a separate one. so we actually we wired it to, to put a phone nice. there. I don't know why, but we did. Um, but the ni- the other thing that's nice about we SIP should, is why don't why, so I should have a phone here and we could like we could call each other right here. We can like bat lines. Go back last week because somebody mentioned that. Oh. Uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. But uh, so actually, I can send you a phone. Okay, do, I it. Have, I have do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. I love a bat line. Okay, all right, we're gonna do it. That's hilarious. Uh, so uh, the other thing that's nice about SIP is last week I had uh, I had my PBX system where I could only buy the phones that worked with the PBX system. Now Dave sends me Polycom phones. I'd previously had Cisco phones, um, but they all just work together. Yeah, yeah, it is great. And Polycom makes good stuff. They so do. that was super nice of Dave to do that. It seemed like people really enjoyed the SIP coverage, which I wasn't quite sure like if it was going to be too technical. And we tried to walk a line of not going like super crazy technical, but still going to give you an idea of what you could do so you could go out on your own and do more if you were motivated, but not bury you if you weren't interested. I think it worked out. Did you notice that practically everyone in the audience, like all the reviews were, they're all ahead of us? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like if you go look at the Reddit, they're like, yeah, I've been using SIP since like 2007. It's yeah. really awesome. Glad you guys finally yeah. caught on. But, like, yeah. like, but they weren't like mean about it. Like they were just like. No, no, yeah. not at all. It just, yeah. it just, it's clearly a technology that everyone else has embraced except me. <laughs> so. Yeah, no, that's true. It's not new. Uh, that's no doubt about that. But uh, it is still like if, you, if it's, it is new to you. And I remember when the first time I got a taste of it, I was just like, this is amazing. My I don't know. Did yeah. I tell you? Did I tell you that my first SIP experience was based on Asterix at a call center for support, and like they had. Oh, really? I think I did tell you this, and they had like a pretty sophisticated one eight hundred call in call tree and get tech support, all powered by Asterix, and that was my first experience with that. And I was like, wow, that is really impressive. Yeah. And, yeah. 
And I've kind of gone from there. Hey, I want to give one more mention. We're going to have a meetup. We just really want to see you guys there at uh, OSCON on Wednesday, July 22nd, 2015. Uh, go to meetup.com slash jupiterbroadcasting. And uh, also don't forget our promo code Linux if you want to get uh, 20% off of a ticket. If you're going to make it to OSCON, we'd love to see you guys there. Uh, this is one of the last hoorahs in Portland, so we want to have it well, with you. <laughs> if you know what I mean, because I don't think they're going to be there next year. I think they're moving to Texas. Texas. Which, yeah, which means uh, it's our last chance to have a meetup uh, for, this t- for this occasion in Portland. So we'd love to see you there. Even if you're not going to OSCON, you can still make it to the meetup, uh, meetup.com slash Broadcasting. And last but not least, i got to mention the subreddit, linuxactionshow.reddit.com. Make this show better with better picks, news stories, discussions, open source projects that need more attention, distro news, and of course, we'll have feedback threads for this individual episode. And you can email us, go to jupiterbroadcasting.com and click the contact link and choose Linux Action Show from the drop down, and we'll feature your email in a future feedback segment. And then on Tuesday, uh, depending on how the scheduling works out, and Linux Unplugged, we may have the interview with the creator of uh, Pinos, uh, the uh, Pulse Video project. So that may be coming up in this Tuesday's Unplugged. It all kind of depends on scheduling, so that's all flexible. But uh, speaking of schedules, you can go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar and get the live schedule in your local time zone so you can join us live for all of our shows. All right, everybody. Well, thank you so much for tuning this week's episode of the Linux Action Show. We'll see you right back here next week. Yeah, at least it boots fast. Yeah, so file system corruption errors when I restarted the machine. Looks like it was just in the temp directory, though. Unbelievable. I don't even know, Noah. I don't even. I don't even know. I don't even. This is crazy. Like, think about when's it the last time you rebooted your computer and it failed to boot because of file system errors? Like, when does that even happen anymore? This is my, uh, my quasal. My, my quasal display right yeah, now. Yeah, right. I actually, you know what's funny? I, I saw it originally and I'm like, oh, I like that. I want, uh, I want that. And I, 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 te- I telegram Rakai at like four in the morning and I'm like, hey, go downstairs to Chris's computer and tell me what theme he uses. <laughs> And so I have the same thing. Yeah, that's funny. Nice. Actually, he before he got up, he's like, I don't have to go down there. I know what theme it is, Noah. And I'm like, no, no, no. Like, can you go check? And he's like, this is the theme. I'm like, I don't think that looks right. And he's like, <sighs> so he goes all the way downstairs. Yeah. And then oh, looks, he, and he's like, yeah. You know, like I know he's the one that told, told me to get it. Yeah. He, I think he told me that too. <laughs> but I never listened. I never listened to him the first time. I keep a, yeah, and I keep <laughs> a theme really file. I keep the theme file in my documents folder. So if I, in my Dropbox, so if I reload the machine, I just have it right there and I just reapply it. What? I do need to take a if I If I could find somebody to come in to studio and, and yeah. knew how to do these shows, mm-hmm. I would just take a week without pay. And I would give them my pay and I would walk out. I would, that, would, that would be fine. If we could keep the shows going and I could walk away yeah. for a week, I would do it right now. Well, you, you can train me. You can train me, Yoda Master. Yeah, except for I you have a job, Noah. Me. You have a job. All right, so it's the news, and this episode is brought to you by... Hey. Sorry, go ahead.